1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. This is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Hannah White about Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, this is both an incredibly sort of important book, but it's also an incredibly well-timed book um, as we see a variety of, uh, I guess, uh, challenges or um problems um, afflicting british politics quite quite generally and actually some of these problems and we might uh, end up talking about this some of these problems are not unique to britain as well but one of the things the book does is tease out this fascinating relationship really between politics politicians the building and the political system that we've got in Britain and I guess the kind of the place to start is really with the moment. Uh, One of the things the book does in its introduction is talk about a kind of an exceptional context that is facing um, Parliament but particularly the House of Commons so I wonder if you could set the scene with what are we talking about in terms of that exceptional context?
0: Yeah so I mean I I think it's exactly as you say Dave it's Some of the things I talk about in the book are are not new and are trends which uh, have persisted over a period of time. But the last uh, sort of five, seven years here in the UK have been a very exceptional time for for British politics. In 2016, we had the Brexit referendum. We had the largely unexpected result that the country voted by a very narrow margin to leave the European Union, and that really uh, threw politics uh, up in the air to a great extent. Um, it meant that there was this uh, opposition almost set up within the British political system between the legitimacy of the referendum and the result that had been delivered to say, you know, people saying we want to leave the EU, and the rest of the political class and the representative democracy system and the parliament who largely, you know, the majority of them had campaigned to remain in the EU. And then once they had this instruction from the British people to to say, no, you know, we're going to leave, there was this very difficult period um, where Parliament tried to uh, have its say over how that process should happen. And the government largely resisted. And that caused some, some really interesting dynamics in the political system, not least because, Uh, It was a a period when there was either a minority government, so um, a a government with no majority in the House of Commons, which is very unusual in the political system here, or a very small majority. So it was not easy for government to handle uh, Parliament, but at the same time it was trying to do a very difficult thing, deal with Brexit, deal with a lot of legislation that needed to be passed um, and a deal that needed to be negotiated with the EU the run-up to Brexit so that was one factor which has made things very exceptional the other of course is the Covid pandemic which has been very much an international phenomenon uh, but has been again a period in which parliament's role has been uh, you know to a large extent sort of sidelined that was what something that politicians tried to achieve during the Brexit period they wanted to get on and do Brexit without too much interference from parliament and then in the Covid period We've had a government with a much bigger majority able to do what it's wanted to do, but um, having to do things very quickly, having to use lots of powers to pass legislation, which Parliament hasn't had much of a say over. And that's been very tricky, again, with the public and the public's perception of what's gone on in Parliament, um, because the public have been asked, as they have across the world, to do some really difficult things by politicians, and yet Parliament hasn't had very much of a say in that. So we've had these, this really tricky period, which we're only really just starting to come out of, I'd say.
1: I mean, the, the book goes on from that, as you describe, sort of tricky period, um, to, to really detail a range of faults that mean that the institutions are not working in the way that they should, but I should say actually before we you know kind of get into I guess the sort of what's wrong with the House of Commons parts of the book, it is worth flagging that in some ways this is um, a kind of a defence of the House of Commons and and I, I guess a kind of a sense of what's possible or you know what good um, kind of le- legislative scrutiny, what a good institution, what perhaps good architecture for Parliament could be and I, and I wonder if, if you could say a little bit about kind of why the House of Commons matters, what its kind of role is in terms of um, holding governments to account, why or you know maybe why it's important that the public trust it and I guess the kind of the ideal that you're hoping uh, could be achieved through through various of the you know critiques that come later in the book.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you might not think it from the title of the book, but I am a, a massive supporter of representative democracy, and I think that parliament is a really crucial part of our democratic system here in the UK. And so, I think it plays a number of important roles. I mean, it has it has functional roles. Its its job is to um, sign off the the money that government wants to spend, uh, to pass the laws that government wants to pass, um, but also crucially to hold government to account. To be the body which uh, in in our system the ministers are, are drawn from within the elected ranks of MPs to become ministers and to become the government the largest party becomes the government but uh, they th- those ministers are held account held to account by their peers within the house of commons and i ar- argue in the book and this isn't a novel argument but i think it's a really important sort of reminder that that's actually really important for stable, trusted government, for the public to trust uh, this government, which is, as we've said in the the pandemic, sometimes asking them to do some really dramatic things. They have to feel that the ministers aren't exercising their power in an arbitrary way, that there are people who can ask them questions, can dig down into why they're doing what they're doing, can uh, ask questions after the event, if things go wrong, to try to prevent things going wrong again. These are all roles that the Parliament plays, and it has this important symbolic uh, role in the system that people can look look at it and think, well, you know, there are people there who we've voted for who um, have the legitimacy to ask these questions on our behalf and make sure that the ministers are doing a good job. And I think if it becomes a very tokenistic relationship between government and Parliament where government sort of largely tries to sort of do what it wants to do and, and, and not engage too much with, with Parliament, then that sense that this is a functioning, useful part of the accountability system ebbs away. And if the public look at the people who are in Parliament and don't respect them, because, as, as you said, David, we've had a whole series of uh, ethical sort of scandals over recent weeks and months and years here, then I think that is problematic because they think, well, who are these people Uh, you know, who do they think they are, Um, and too often uh, the answer to that is these are people who think that the rules don't apply to them. So they're people who are asking everybody else to follow a set of rules, Uh, they're passing these laws, uh, but they're not actually following those rules themselves, and then that creates a a sense of sort of hypocrisy for the public, and a danger that they cease to respect the institution of Parliament and the role that it plays, and that that undermines our whole system of
1: government. Maybe we'll take out the two points you've made in turn. The first thing is, you know, you mentioned this kind of sense of accountability. And one of the things that's been quite a lively set of discussions over the course of the pandemic period, but as you mentioned, you know, it's got a slightly longer history, is this problem of parliament not scrutinizing the government's parliament being kind of sidelined both in terms of um you know specific examples where you know literally we have sort of legal frameworks coming in with little or no um parliamentary oversight at all um or i guess a more general drift um which again has been long debated around governments that have large majorities and how you might kind of, you know, scrutinise and, and rein them in. So, so I guess the, the question is in this kind of particular post-pandemic moment, how has Parliament, how has the House of Commons been been sidelined and, and how has it sort of stopped doing its key job?
0: So I think that there are a number of problems. Um, one is, you know, in the context of the pandemic, a lot of legislation had to be passed very quickly. Uh, so Ministers got used to using the procedures in the House of Commons, which are designed to enable that, which is, you know, really important in the context of a pandemic. If you, you need to be able to do things and you need to be able to do things quickly, you do need to be able to pass legislation fast. What we've seen, though, since as the pandemic has progressed and, and sort of um, we, we all hope um, is, is, is we're moving on from it. Um is the ministers have continued to tend to use those powers of accelerated passage of legislation, which means that Parliament doesn't get as many opportunities to to go into the detail uh, and and to scrutinise the the policies that the government's passing, even when there is no actual justification for speed. And we had a case of that. The government wanted to bring in a tax rise to pay for uh, specifically for social care, and it decided to, to pass the legislation within a week of having announced that, that change it passed the legislation within a week, which is exceptionally quick. And there was no um, apparent justification for doing that other than if they left it too long, there might be have been, I think, more political problems to handle around it. So that's one problem. Another problem is an increasing uh, tendency for governments to try to pass what we call skeleton bills. And these are bills where, the government doesn't include a lot of detail of policy on the face of the bill, of the, of the piece of legislation. They What they do is in the, in the piece of legislation, they say, we are going to give ministers powers to fill in all this detail after uh, the law has been passed. So it's just a power on the face of the bill. It's just a uh, ability for, for ministers to pass what we call secondary legislation, which gets much less parliamentary scrutiny. Uh, it's really a very much take-it-or-leave-it process for Parliament. And so that was um, sort of necessary in the Brexit period because uh, there was a lot of unknown and uh, the laws had to be passed very quickly. Uh, In the COVID period, new powers did need to be taken, although lots of the powers that government used to do things like impose lockdown were already there in some pre-existing public health um, legislation. But we are increasingly seeing this as a wider trend, that rather than giving Parliament the opportunity to scrutinise policy on the face of the bill and to have detailed debates about it in committees and in in, in plenary. Instead, we just see Parliament being asked to hand over powers to ministers, and then there's much less control over what they then do with those powers. Um, So so that uh, is is another problem that that we've seen. Um, So yeah, I think there's this sort of increased use of uh, procedures, which essentially mean that Parliament doesn't get uh, as much say over the, the policies that government's bringing forward, means that it's much weaker in terms of the scrutiny that it's able to do.
1: And there are big questions about the people doing that scrutiny. And one of the things the um, I think it's the second chapter in, in the book. Um, one of the points it makes is that Parliament is is not very representative of the population for a body of individuals in the House of Commons who is supposed to be as you've mentioned, a representative democracy. So, so I, I guess it'd be useful to know, um, <laughs> without sort of, you know, being too personal or naming too many names, what, what, what is the problem of kind of unrepresentativeness that we have in the House of Commons at the moment, particularly, you know, that lack of representation when it's applied to things like scrutinising bills or looking at secondary legislation?
0: Yeah, so I mean obviously it's it's entirely possible for somebody to represent the views of someone else or the experience of someone else if they don't they're not descriptively representative of that person. You don't have to be a woman to talk about the experiences of women and so on. But I do think that there are a number of problems with the fact that the House of Commons is not descriptively representative of of the population. Um, and that's in both in terms of gender, where after having had the possibility of women becoming MPs, uh uh, for over a century now, only a third of MPs actually are. It's also in terms of lots of other aspects of diversity, uh, including ethnicity, age, uh, disability, sexual orientation, and so on and so, so forth. Um, I think it's a problem from a symbolic point of view that, uh, as I've said, you know, people look at the House of Commons, they look at these people who are setting the laws for the rest of them, and they don't necessarily have confidence that these people who are there are bringing uh, they so have the sort of life experience that they have that that should be represented in the, in the House of Commons, and I think that, that that that's symbolically important for people looking at the House of Commons, but it's also practically important for the effectiveness of the House. And as you say, you know, this actually has a real impact on you know passage of legislation and so on, because it is actually you know there is this academic research which proves that uh, people who Um, when people who um, uh, act as legislators are more likely to raise issues and and to talk about things which they themselves have personal experience of. And we've seen it, for example, if you look at the the gender angle in the House of Commons, that as more uh, women joined the House of Commons as MPs, issues like childcare, like flexible working, which hadn't really been on the agenda at all uh, for um, the House of Commons, Suddenly started to be things which were discussed, and these are things which you know people are just more likely to raise if they have that experience of it themselves. So, I think there's an effectiveness argument that if you want a legislature which is going to tackle the problems and deal with the experiences of the people who uh, elect the people who are there, then you actually it's important for it to look obviously not identical but as close as possible as, as as you can to representing all the diversity of experience um and 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 in characteristics that are there in the in the population more generally
1: and you'd hope a more representative body of MPs would lead to a cultural change in the house and and, and later on in the book you talk about um a, a series really I mean, I'd describe it as a kind of almost institutional culture of things like bullying, sexual harassment, um, which have been, you know, both individual scandals, but um, I think as a result of the various um, bits of reporting and also attempts to kind of shift and and change or um, hold to account particular MPs, we've seen this kind of sense of, of, of the House having a pretty grim institutional culture. And... This goes right the way back to, to where you, you started. Actually, you, know, you talked about there is this potential problem that MPs see themselves as being a bit kind of exceptional, a bit different, rules not applying to them. And, and I guess the recent scandals are, are a good illustration of this. So I wonder if you could um, sort of set out um, what has been going on really in, in the House of Commons over recent years and, and the, I suppose the kind of challenge that that brings when we're thinking about the Commons as an institution that can do good things and should be defended?
0: Yeah, so I, I think that the, the the problems we've seen sort of come down to a, a couple of broad characteristics of, of the House of Commons as an institution. One is that um, it very much any large institution is going to represent the sort of preferences and the experience and the expectations of the people that make it up. And over time, you know, as we've just discussed, the House of Commons has not been a very diverse place and it has been set up in such a way that it reflects the experience and so on of uh, essentially older white men who are comfortable with a certain way of, of operating the institution and other influences have been relatively uh, fewer and, and harder to sort of bring into that culture. The other uh, sort of characteristic of the House of Commons, which sort of generates this sort of cultural dynamic, I think, is the fact that it's always Mm -hmm. had this um, important uh, principle that the House of Commons governs itself. We call it exclusive cognizance, um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's the fact that only MPs and only the current set of MPs can determine how the House is and should be run. And that means that uh, it's very difficult to have any sort of independent or external influences over those decisions. And what we've seen that lead to um, has been a series of scandals. We've had, if you go back as far as 2010, there was an expenses scandal uh, where a large number of um, MPs were uh, discovered to have in some way um, uh, misused the expenses system which they had. Uh, which was additional to their salary, and a lot of them had sort of treated it as though it was just additional salary top-up, and they had a right to claim it, and had claimed some of the the wrong things. And I think that part of the reason we got into that situation was because uh, the House of Commons was very focused that it should be in control of its own sort of financial system, and determining salaries and expenses and so on. And that was all done in-house, and it made it a very inward process where actually things were done for the benefit of MPs rather than for the benefit of taxpayers. Then more recently, um, we've had uh, sort of the, the Me Too movement um, uh, had its uh, had a wave through Westminster, and we've seen uh, a lot of scandals around bullying and harassment. And again, I think um, that can be traced back to a sense of MPs uh, who are not employees, who are not em- employed by anyone except elected by the people, having this sense that actually the rules that apply to everyone else in terms of HR and you know not harassing your staff don't really apply to them. And there were no... Um, proper systems of investigation or sanction against MPs who might behave in that way because there was this sort of assumption that, oh, well, you know, MPs are honourable members and uh, they should only determine for themselves what was was good or bad behaviour and they shouldn't be held to external standards. And that created a really bad working uh, environment for staff. Also, I think for other MPs. And that's one of the things I've been reflecting on in the last couple of weeks when we've had a number of. Um, uh, further scandals about misogyny and sexism in the House of Commons um, has been that actually the work that's been done since the Me Too problems that there were has maybe been better for staff than it has for members themselves. And my observation in recent weeks is that female MPs still seem really worried about the prospect of calling out bad behaviour. The culture hasn't really changed for them. Maybe staff are now able, because a lot of sort of new systems and processes have been put in, the staff of of the House of Commons and the House of Lords are better able to challenge bad behaviour from MPs, but I'm not sure that for MPs themselves that dynamic has changed as much as we might hope.
1: Yeah, and, and depressingly uh, for people who sort of follow daily news in in Britain, there does seem to be either a reflection of that lack of change um, or a fresh set of scandals. Certainly weekly, but. Um, in some cases daily which, which doesn't really that sort of bode well in in terms of your hope for uh, I guess kind of reform and, and and change of the House of Commons and and on that point um, that the sort of it, this runs right the way through the book actually but but the sort of concluding parts of the book look at the building itself and it's it's sort of funny um to to spend you know a, a lot of time worrying about the state of a building but as you mentioned right at the very end, of the book you know the building itself is probably quite a severe fire risk and there are numerous health and safety problems with it um it you know there are certain things where it's just really not fit for purpose anymore particularly actually in terms of things like mp's office uh spaces and you know the ability to to sort of um have a, a pleasant physical work, working environment and, and i guess that you know kind of story of the building is is a uh, a, a physical kind of depiction of, of some of the other failures uh, or some of the other problems of, of the House of Commons that you detail throughout the book. So, so I guess the kind of the question there is, what is wrong with the building? Uh, what is wrong with having, you know, a royal palace effectively that can't really be um, sort of uh, transformed or, or dealt with without huge expense and hugely complicated processes? And, and is it kind of fit for um, hosting a legislative body?
0: I mean, the short answer to that is no, absolutely not. I mean, in a kind of, um, again, in a sort of symbolic sense, the Palace of Westminster, which is a sort of iconic building which everyone would think of when they think of of Westminster with Big Ben and the sort of Gothic, neo-Gothic towers over the Thames, is falling apart. Um, But the starting problem, really, before you even get to the sort of decrepit state of the building. Um, And in fact, the dangerous state of the building, as you say, there's massive fire risk, but there are also risks from falling masonry um, uh, and and from very ancient mechanical and electrical systems and so on. Um, But this was a building which was was built by the Victorians um, to embody a whole set of values around a parliament which just don't hold um, in the modern era. So it was built to be very uh, sort of impressive. It was a sort of represent- representation in many ways of of, of uh, the UK sort of imperial status. It's a very exclusive building. It's it's all about maintaining hierarchies and places where MPs and peers can go, but the public aren't welcome. The spaces where uh, you know the public can go are relatively limited uh, there's lots of kind of rules and um, sort of uh, uh, quite a lot of sort of open rules but also unknown rules that you might you know you feel as you walk around the building you might inadvertently wander into the wrong place and then you would get sort of told off or arrested by the police it's a it's a very unwelcoming building designed to maintain the sort of prestige and uh, superiority of a class of ruling politicians and that is not at all um, how I think most parliamentarians would like to um, to think of their their parliament today today you know it should be all about you know uh, inclusion and the public finding this to be an accessible place um, and somewhere where um, you know it's it, the parliament you know belongs to them as much as it does to to politicians um, and but that is not what we have and we have this building which um, is a sort of heritage icon uh, but which is having to have hundreds of millions of pounds a year spent on it just to try to keep up with the scale of the things that are going wrong with it. But at the same time, uh, politicians cannot agree on a larger scale uh, programme of works which is needed, which would cost billions of pounds and practically involve Parliament moving out of Westminster for a period of years, no generation of of politicians has been able to reconcile itself to the trade-offs and the disadvantages that that would present for them personally. Um, And and to to say, yes, this is a nettle we have to grasp. Instead, every generation has passed that problem on to their successors. Um, And, you know, I really fear that we're going to end up in a situation where uh, you know not only are we spending millions of pounds and and the legislature is is meeting in a very suboptimal um, place but also um, uh, that you know we're going to end up with somebody getting seriously hurt or killed because of the dangers of the building
1: so what what is to be done through, throughout the book um, you have sort of um, not just at the end of each chapter, but but you keep coming back to ideas for reform, for change. And, and as I say, and as I've stressed, you know, that kind of potential for um, the the sort of high standards that Parliament and, and the House of Commons in particular could, could embody. So what are some of the recommendations, ideas, um, some of the sort of potential reforms that the book discusses? Because it, I think I mentioned at the start, you know, this is not a book that says they're all absolutely useless. Uh, so, you know, there's nothing that can be done. We need some kind of revolution to get rid of them. It is very much a book that's about, you know, there are things that can be done to sort this out. Yeah,
0: so I mean, I think the most fundamental thing that needs to happen is that uh, MPs themselves need to recognise that the public, low public trust in Parliament and in politicians is a problem. But it's also, you know, and it's a serious problem, but it's a problem that they do, they can and should uh, try to address rather than, as I sort of feel sort of frustratedly watching, that they too often say, oh, well, you know, isn't this terrible? Nobody has trust in politicians, but they don't really try to do anything about it. Um, So, I mean, I I come up with a number of thoughts. One of the most important really is about the balance of power between the government and parliament itself. And one of the big impediments to parliament sort of improving and reforming itself is the high degree of control that the government has over Parliament as an institution. And the fact that if something isn't in the interests of of government, um, might shift the power more towards the legislature or towards the public, um, then the government just doesn't have to provide time for a debate or decision and nothing can happen. And so that sense that um, government has a responsibility to think about uh, the the value um, and the credibility of Parliament as an institution, and that it's in its own interests to do so, because otherwise, as I said at the start, ultimately a weak Parliament undermines government as well. That's one of the sort of the, the key um, arguments that I make. that par- The government needs to to recognise that. The government needs to um, think. In a, in a bigger picture way about the reputation of Parliament when it's making short-term political decisions. I think too often MPs are inclined to sort of respond to problems which occur in Parliament by saying, oh, you know, it's a few bad apples, uh, don't worry, you know, the system isn't the problem, it's just, you know, there's this one person who's done this thing wrong. And actually, I don't think there's often a serious enough look at what the systemic cultural issues are, as we've discussed, which might encourage people who are sort of inclined to behave badly, to behave in that way. Um, I think that MPs generally need to, to reflect on what I talk about as sort of the limits of their specialness. I have a whole chapter, you might think I have something of, bugbear, of a bugbear about this, the whole chapter which I is titled Exceptionalism, and it talks about why MPs think that they are Special and what the good grounds are for that, but what also the limits are of the specialness of a, of an MP, and I think that MPs need to to recognise uh, that and um, uh, and 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 to behave accordingly. Then there's a whole set of recommendations around uh, the representation point that you know is yes. It's really important for political parties to think about how to increase the diversity of the House of Commons in the candidates that they choose uh, to become their MPs, but actually MPs themselves also have a responsibility to think about how inclusive and welcoming a space uh, the Parliament is, somewhere that a diverse set of people might look at and think yes, I can see myself there and I would like to go and be a part of that. And at the moment, and particularly in the in the last few weeks, with the sort of misogyny scandal that we've had, I can I I don't think that Parliament is doing a good job of that at all. Um, so yeah, so those are just some of the things which I which I highlight, um, and and some of them you know are there's some very practical things around you know providing time the government providing time for debates on specific um, uh, changes to procedure or, or practice uh, which which currently don't have to happen, but there's also some bigger ways in which I think MPs and the government need to reflect on uh, the sort of value of Parliament and, and not just seeing it always as sort of as, an, as uh, either from the government's point of view an impediment to something they might want to do and from MPs point of view just as sort of, a sort of given that people will always have respect for um, Parliament as an institution because I don't think that that's something we can be entirely sanguine about.
1: The book is something that I think, and, and you've illustrated it really well there, uh, that basically sort of everybody in Britain should be reading, really, to think about uh, what's going wrong with um, its uh, system of legislature and, 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 to an extent, government, and you know what we might do about it. But on a personal level, obviously, the book is you know kind of incredibly well timed and, and speaks to these uh, debates that we've got right now. But are you thinking about? I mean, hopefully, not a sequel. <laughs> and <laughs> you know uh, another book you know sort of uh, hopefully saying you know what went right in terms of reform um you know you, you do obviously lots of work for and with the institute for government which you know has it, got a great reputation for uh shaping kind of you know better government in, in britain and, and indeed elsewhere um or do you think this you know was kind of it for books for you for a while
0: uh well, don't ask my family. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, one of the things I actually would like to look at more, um, but it, it, this isn't going to be a, a quickfire thing. But one of the things which currently I think you know is missing from the current book and is something which I'd like to reflect on more and, and address is um, our voting system in the UK and the extent to which the way in which Parliament operates and our politics operates is driven by the the first-past-the-post system um, and and what the the alternatives might be, because a a lot of time when I was thinking about behaviour, culture, process, procedure, so many things to do with how Parliament works are fundamentally bound up with uh, the the first-past-the-post electoral system. And I just think it would be a really interesting... Uh, sort of intellectual and imaginative exercise to think about how things might work differently if you used a different system for choosing the MPs who are in 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 Parliament. So that is something I'm sort of toying with. But as I say, don't let my family hear me say that. <laughs>